Hello and welcome to The Stack. On today's show, it's all about counterculture. From a wonderful new book telling us the history of iconic Italian gay magazine Fuori, to a look at the revolutionary WBCN radio station in the United States. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. A delightful show here where we look at two books telling us the history of counterculture icons. The first one is Fuori, 1971-1974, to a stunning and gigantic orange book featuring the printed editions of the iconic gay Italian magazine Fuori, and how it was so important politically. The book is published by Nero Editions and edited by Carlo Antonelli and Francesco Urbano Ragazzi. I had the pleasure to speak with both of them. Fuori is, uh, first of all, a magazine. A magazine started to be published in 1971 in Italy, in Turin in particular. It started as an urgency. It was coming from a bookstore owner called Angelo Pezzana, and it's very related to an article uh, that defined the moment uh, homosexuality as an illness. So, of course, we are in the middle of the late 60s, early 70s, so we are in the middle of this uh, incredible arise of um, civil rights movements and political movements. And in particular, in Italy, the situation was boiling in between uh, movements of every kind. So this bookstore owner called Angelo Pezzanas, by the way, is the only man who's interviewed in the book, decided literally to come out, to collect some of his friends and decided that it was the moment to stop the situation and um, decide to become a movement. A movement can be started by, of course, three people, four people, and then uh, that's what they did. And the first thing that they did was making a magazine. The magazine was distributed, the number, the pilot, number zero, distributed in the places of Batuage in the north of Italy. We call it in the introduction a great marketing idea. And the um, they were more brave and they went into the newsstands. Of course, the success of the review in the newsstands was not incredible, but the fact that it was present in uh, most of the newsstands in Italy and the newsstands in Italy were everywhere, everywhere in town, everywhere in the little village, like literally everywhere. And the made the publication um, legendary and of course the you know not only but the fact that of course the, it, it sort of enlightened what wanted to come out and so in the same moment of course a, a political movement came out called fuori of course in a circle of circles and then uh, a magazine that was amazing because it was a mixture of uh, highbrow articles coming from everywhere, maybe some of them were stolen probably, I don't know, like correspondence by great Italian writers like uh, uh, Fernanda Pivano or Alfredo Cohen, 
and um, but also great pieces of drawings and humor that makes the entire tone of the publication uh, eclectic and um, and of course in a sort of like a system of anticipation of future possibility of publishing that basically came out in Italy in the late 70s and everywhere in uh, in the 80s. Uh, we decided to select the free the first 13 numbers because the last number the 13th one is dedicated to woman it's called Fuori Donna and it was of course a publication dedicated to the um, contemporary arising of lesbian circles and uh, lesbian movements and after the 13th number Fuori became a sort of like political party that decided to split and some of them went to the really famous Partito Radicale, Radical Party in Italy, was the propeller of the individual human rights in Italy, like abortion, uh, divorce, blah, 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 through referendum. But one part of it, including the legendary Maromieri, decided to uh, not to get in, and uh, the magazine is changing and is also changing in design terms, and in design terms, the magazine is a masterpiece. And uh, to cut the long story short, uh, we just decided to make this material available because uh, it was never scanned. There is a place where the magazine is, which is the Fondazione Sandro Penna, and still an amazing place where you can find a similar publication from all over the world, because Fuori was not the only magazine uh, about gay rights in, uh, in the world. It was lots of other similar publication in, uh, in the US, in the UK. There was one also, a friend sent me yesterday an image of one in the same period in Brazil. I don't remember the name. Uh, I will tell you later. And uh, so it's clear that, of course, it's part of a general arise of a, of a dream of a different society that slowly uh, was realized step by step and is still under construction. Well, that's a fantastic introduction there, uh, Carlo. And Francesco, one thing that I was very interested reading more about Fuori as Carlo was saying, it was selling at newsstands, but not only on the big cities as well, like even in the smaller ones, like in Italy, which was quite groundbreaking. I mean, uh, we're talking here about the early 70s. Tell us a bit more, what was your experience with Fuori? Clearly, I mean, I know you didn't grow up with it, but is it still talked about in Italy as, as kind of a, a cult magazine in a way? No, no. Um, until this publication, I would say, and uh, a few other operations uh, for it was uh, uh, somehow a forgotten uh, material, for, a forgotten uh, history, a uh, forgotten story. Also because, uh, yes, it's true, the magazine uh, uh, since number uh, one was released into newsstands, but uh, for uh, shame and obvious reasons, uh, almost nobody uh, bought it uh, at the time. So almost 80% uh, of the copies uh, were sent back uh, to, to the editor. And that's why it's uh, quite rare now to, uh, to have the chance to read uh, the, the foreign in, in its original copies. Uh, 
but it's uh, what's impressive. Yes, it's true. Is uh, its connective capacity in a pre-internet uh, time. Uh, I think there are two uh, interesting elements. Uh, the people who funded Fuori were linked uh, quite immediately with other international movements. Uh, so since the very beginning, uh, uh, translations uh, from uh, the Gay Liberation Front uh, in London or the FAR in, uh, in Paris, uh, uh, but even from the Argentinian uh, homosexual liberation movement were published uh, on the pages of Fuori. Uh, so uh, there was this immediate uh, international aim, I would say, but at the same time, it was very difficult to penetrate uh, uh, Italy and all the little towns and villages around, uh, around Italy. That was uh, much more difficult. Uh, and we see that uh, uh, issue by issue, uh, we can read uh, on the first page of the magazine, uh, all the groups uh, that are uh, created anew. Uh, so we can, uh, we can see groups uh, first in Milan, in Venice, uh, in Pordenone, and then in Southern Italy also, in Naples, uh, in Rome, in Sicily. Uh, so Fuori, little by little, in just three years, uh, conquered uh, Italy. Uh, this is impressive if we think uh, that uh, it was 1971. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And now a question coming back to you, Carlo. Now, tell us about the format of the book. It's huge, as I was saying. Uh, you know, did, were you guys, did you want to do that instead of just kind of a a smaller book was that the intention to show perhaps how revolutionary was the title because that size is not very common actually in terms of books and i think that's what makes the book book quite special as well <laughs> <laughs> but first first of all it respects the size of the real magazine that's the, the the most important thing like the so in a way the real size uh, decided the the format the second thing is that it's not a selection like it's just the real thing that means that all the 13 issues are there so that makes uh, of course the book sort of like 400 pages and 400 pages goes uh, to three kilos and uh, together with the size and so um, thinking about it we decided to make it like objet um, trouvé something like a work in itself that was very important because we didn't want any nostalgic effect out of the the idea there is no nostalgia, there is no, not an idea of, uh, it's an idea, of course, of making the, the material public, but in the same time, and that's why there is a bomb on the cover, we think that this is explosive material, this is like an unexploded bomb that um, can still make an incredible impact on uh, the, the civil society. And so we wanted the magazine to represent uh, uh, something that it was impossible to ignore. That is also a bomb, like an impossible object in your houses. There is a quite impossible object to bring with you. Uh, there is something you can avoid to um, uh, encounter, to meet in your house, because it cannot be 
stock in the bookshelves. They will destroy your bookshelves. It's uh, and at the same time, it's like a parody of. Uh, Tashin book or Fidon books because it's a table book that in the same times contain such material. And as somebody say, it's not a table book, but if you put um, some uh, uh, something under it, it became a table in itself. And in um, the same times, of course, is a, is a tribute to the, as I said before, to the wonderful quality of, uh, of the magazine itself. And Fuori anticipated a lot of the graphic ideas that, as I said before, came out in the late 70s from uh, amazing magazine like uh, Il Male or uh, the legendary Frigidaire. And now I have a question. I'll ask Francesco, but then Carlo, if you want to comment after as well. Francesco, do you think, are there magazines today that are a bit like Fuori or do you think that time is gone in a way? What do you think? I think it's very difficult to find comparisons uh, uh, nowadays that fits uh, this kind of experience uh, because uh, writing and reading uh, changed a lot. Uh, uh, so we, we read more, we read more words. Uh, it's not true that we live in a visual culture nowadays. We, we live in a, we, we keep living in a written culture, but we read the more uh, fragmented texts. Uh, so messages, emails, uh, uh, comments, uh, uh, posts, uh, and so on and so forth. And while uh, Fuori was uh, an appointment, was a love letter, uh, for lonely hearts, uh, let's say, uh, around Italy, uh, for people who hadn't the chance to be connected, uh, while we are uh, immediately connected. And I think this, is, this plays uh, a big difference uh, uh, in the way we, uh, we write and we receive this kind of uh, materials. Uh, so maybe nowadays, uh, uh, Fuori would mean more about being disconnected, finding a way to be out of, uh, um, of, of profiling, uh, being out of uh, given categories, uh, even the categories uh, that uh, the uh, institutional gay movement continues to, uh, to create. Uh, uh, all these letters that uh, are infinite uh, uh, already. Um, so, uh, Fuori, I think, uh, nowadays would be an experience of disconnection, of outness, uh, and which is rare, very rare nowadays. Thank you very much, Carlo and Francesco. And the book Fuori is out now. Finally on the show, another fascinating book that is about another counterculture icon, WBCN Station. In WBCN and the American Revolution, Bill Lichtenstein goes through the incredible history of the Boston radio that defined politics, counterculture and rock and roll. Bill worked at the station from 1971 to 1977. He shared some insights with me. I will tell you so rare. There wasn't any radio station at all that played any of this kind of music. I'm gonna tell you so, baby. It was clearly ours. Older people didn't like it. 
didn't understand it. But well, we were all hippies. We all had long hair. With 240,000 students in Boston, the best chance I had to pay the rent on this thing was uh, to play rock music. The story of the station, I think, is important because it had such an impact uh, on radio, on media, on music. But in addition, it overlaid all of the great uh, social changes that took place in the U.S. and throughout the world, starting you know, around 1968, uh, particularly 1968 when the station went on the air, um, involving uh, second wave feminism and gay and lesbian rights and human rights issues and environmental rights and all of that. And the station was uh, imminently involved in a lot of that and helping to promote and foster those kinds of changes. And Bill, tell us more about your personal connection. Of course, you've worked at the radio station. I want to know more about that. But when the radio was launched, were you aware of the radio? Was it a place that you were already thinking? That's where I want to work, actually. Well, I grew up just, you know, loving radio. <laughs> there were, you know, I used to listen to these top 40 stations, and it's where you could hear uh, rock and roll. And, and you know, sort of, uh, it was exciting to listen to. Uh, as a young kid. And when I was in the ninth grade, I was in this alternative educational program where they had us uh, one day a week all go out and volunteer someplace for, for a semester. And WBCN had just been on the air. People were talking about it. There was a lot of buzz about it. And so I called the station to ask if they needed help, if I could volunteer there. And it was my luck that they had just started something called the listener line, which was kind of like the Google of its day before the Internet. You know, if you wanted to find out anything, uh, people were calling the station a lot, whether it be, hey, I got a draft notice, you know, uh, from the military. What should I do? My roommate took too much LSD. I need a ride to California, <laughs> or, or can you play the new Beatles album? Whatever it was, people were calling the station. And if people were on the air, it was hard to do a radio show answering all these calls. So they set up something called the listener line, where they encourage people to call with any question, any problem. We'll do whatever we can to help you. And so I started off answering uh, the listener line and very quickly got pulled into covering news stories uh, because Danny Schechter, who was the the news dissector at the station who was doing two newscasts a day didn't have any help. He, he had just started. And so he began giving me a tape recorder times and saying, you know, can you go to this demonstration and ask people? He, the first time I went out, he gave me the perfect question for a 14-year-old who had never done an interview before. He said, turn on the tape recorder and ask people, why are you here? <laughs> and so I started covering news and got very interested in uh, sort of taking the actualities that we would get, the sound, whether it be a Nixon speech or an interview, and intercutting it with comedy material, music, kind of creating these audio montages that they were playing on the news. And so at some point, not long after that, uh, I was asked if I would want to do a weekly radio show. And so, you know, starting off at the age of 14, covering news shortly thereafter, I had a weekly weekend radio show, four-hour show, uh, on the station and did that till I went off to college a few years later. That's fantastic. And how young you were as well when you when you started with that. that that's, that's amazing. And Bill, in terms of research for the book and the documentary as well, I was reading, I mean, the public actually helped quite a lot as well because there were not many tapes around from that time, right? 
That's right. I mean, one of the things that just was sort of part of the gestalt, I guess, of the period was, is that people weren't thinking about preserving any of this stuff uh, for posterity. So like one night, famously, uh, Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead and Dwayne Allman from the Allman Brothers, both their bands were playing in town. And afterwards, they met up and said, we should just go over to BCN and see if, you know, we can play on the air. And so they stopped by the station on their own and ended up on the air for a couple hours talking and playing music. And, and you know, nobody thought to record it. It just wasn't something people were sort of concerned about at that time. And so these things over the years were sort of legendary moments in the station's history, but there were no tapes of them. The station from the early days had no tape archive. And so when I started off, one of the things that interested me in doing the film was by the mid 2000s, particularly with Napster uh, raging and uh, there started to be all of these tapes appearing on the internet that people had taped off the air, many of them from BCN, some of these classic moments. And so before the word, you know, crowd, uh, anything was a word, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing didn't exist at the time, but in, in this was even before Facebook. But in the mid 2000s, I thought, what if we put the word out that if you have any tapes, you know, send them to us. And so we began to get a lot of material both uh, audio tapes, photographs, uh, people's uh, remembrances. And so I initially called it an open source uh, documentary. In fact, if you go to Wikipedia and look up open source uh, films, it's, it's listed as the first open source documentary, which was really created by the ability to uh, enlist the public in donating material for it. Um, same for the... Um, the cost, most of the cost came from uh, several crowdfunding campaigns. The first one we raised over $100,000 uh, US in the early days of uh, Kickstarter, uh, you know, from, from 10 and $20 contributions from listeners uh, who remembered the station. So it really was very much in the spirit of the station. It was something that could not have been done by me alone or any one person. And I think it was important to do it independently because I think this story, if told by MTV or a corporate media outlet, uh, would not have really had the full context that, that this film had. You know, if it was reduced to a, a like a VH1 behind the, uh, you know, I don't know what they would call them in Britain, but there are these, you know, sort of features that they have where they kind of reduce somebody's life story to 20 minutes, you know. <laughs> And, and I think it really took the time and the effort to be able to put it in. And, and that meant going out and raising the money for it. Well, I'm glad you picked up the project. Uh, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's nice because the book is also, I mean, the imagery also, I think that's what makes the book so special as well. It's not, we see so many images from the archives. And uh, do you think WBCN was influential to other radio stations? I say radio stations, but, you know, any other forms of media publications that we still see today? When WBCM went on the air, FM radio had just uh, launched not long before that. And the appeal of FM radio over AM was that it didn't have static and it was in stereo. So it seemed perfect for people who wanted to listen to classical music was the first big use of it. There were a couple stations around the country that began playing rock and roll on FM uh, because it didn't have a big listenership. It was kind of a new a medium. And um, 
you know, BCN was among them. What, what BCN stood apart, though, was, I think, really changing the whole tone uh, of the station, the young announcers, the conversational tone, uh, the politics. It was both the music and uh, a very radical, politically radical newsroom. And I think they started to make so much money because of the advertising it was really if you were in Boston in those days and you wanted to reach that audience of, of 250,000 college kids, whether you were selling blue jeans or concert tickets, you know, you, BCM was the place to do it. So they started making a significant amount of money out of this. And, it, and I think stations around the country took note. And as Ray Reapin said, you know, within a year or two, every station in the country wanted to sound like uh, BCN. The, the other thing I think, and that meant including playing all kinds of music that, that you would hear folk, jazz, rock, blues, classical, opera, you know, it really mixed it up. But also the news coverage that, that sort of kicked in in 1969 or 1970 stood in opposition to what had been the tradition of broadcast news at that point, which was very authoritative, um, objective uh, reporting. Walter Cronkite, who was the, the CBS television anchorman that most people watched in the 60s, would conclude every broadcast by saying, and that's the way it is, <laughs> you know, August 15th, 1969. And what, what BCN did, I think, was bring the idea that, that you could have a point of view, you could have a context, you could be uh, subjective if you were fair and accurate and balanced. And so they began mixing news up with comedy and, and music and, um, you know, Allen Ginsberg, the, the famous poet, uh, came by to read a couple news stories one day about uh, global pollution. And as he did, he he was interjecting with poems he had written about the earth. And, you know, it, it made it much more interesting. And I think paved the way, you know, I'm not sure uh, your listeners um, are where in the U.S., you know, there's a tradition now of broadcasts that cover the news, but with a comic lens. So uh, John Stewart's The Daily Show is one of the big innovators of this on Saturday Night Live. They do a new segment every week that's sort of satirical. Well, at one point, John Stewart, who was a comedian and doing this kind of humorous take on the news, I think a lot of this dates back to that's the way it was, I think, which was a British uh, or the week that was the week that was. Is that what it was called? That tradition, in many ways, you know, BCN was was at the early part of that. And what makes it interesting is John Stewart, who was a comedian at one point was sort of considered the most credible uh, journalist in America because there was something that made his presentation much more credible. And I think that's what BCN uh, found with its listeners was by putting things in context and having a point of view. And I think finally the straight press, uh, mainstream press is coming around to that. There's been a lot of talk in the United States over the last few years about breaking away from this need to be totally objective uh, is if you don't have a point of view, and if the president of the United States says something that's an out-and-out -out lie, as a recent president was wont to do, that it needed to be called a lie, and, and maybe, you know, to say that this is a lie. In the old days, that was unheard of, and so I think it paved the way for, for a lot of that. That's fantastic, and, and, and Bill, sorry, I don't, I don't want to trick you into a question here, but if you could choose, like, 
a song or an artist that defined your period at the station? Because it would be nice to end the interview like playing a little bit of, of, a, of a nice track. Yeah. And I want to leave it with you because you, you know best. <laughs> well, there's an album. Uh, so, so Peter Townsend, the who found, I think he was 13 or 14 year old guitarist, this sort of prodigy. And they recorded this album. The group was called Thunderclap Newman. And I think they did just the one album. And there's a song called Something in the Air, uh, which sort of became one of the anthems uh, of that era. Uh, you know, talking about the revolutions here and played a lot, you know, on the station along with, you know, others like Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who and Gimme Shelter and Something in the Air, I think, particularly sort of captured the station. Thank you very much, Bill, and what a great song to end the interview as well. WBCN and the American Revolution is out now. And the documentary of the same name is also out. Just go to theamericanrevolution.fm. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen again at monaco.com or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. It's Marvin Gaye with What's Going On. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. You see, war is not the answer for only love.